This case concerns itself with the conviction of a defendant. Thank you, gentlemen. The case is submitted. We'll hear arguments next in Batson against Kentucky. Welcome to another episode of Bears the Bar and Beyond the Baylor Pre-Law Podcast. This week, we have a very special guest. We have Julie Kavanaugh with us, who's the diplomat in residence at the University of Texas's uh, LBJ School of Public Affairs and uh, a veteran diplomat. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to do this. I've never done a podcast before. So. <laughs> well, we're glad, we're glad you could join us. You, you started out um, at uh, Georgetown. As an, as an undergraduate, what kind of fed your interest while you were there in foreign affairs? You know, for me, I am a practical kind of person. And my education at Georgetown was filled with opportunities to have practical experience, being exposed to foreign affairs, international affairs, whether it be through faculty who have real-life experience or internship opportunities or study abroad opportunities. I think that it was just a place for me personally that really resonated in terms of being engaged globally, and that really set me on my way. Did you know very early on what you wanted to do, or did you change majors and, and directions a few times? You know, I didn't even really know what the Foreign Service was when I joined, uh, when I went to Georgetown University. I knew I was interested in international affairs. I remember way back early on, even in high school, saying that I was going to be the supreme, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. <laughs> not just a Supreme not, Court Justice. Exactly, Chief Justice. not just a Supreme Court Justice. If you're gonna, if you're gonna go big, do it all the way, right? <laughs> So after you completed your studies at Georgetown, you then went on and got your master's in Latin studies from the University of Chicago. Uh, Was it important for your career progression that you went straight from college into a master's program? Or is there some benefit in perhaps getting some work experience first and figuring out what your area of specific interest might be? I think it somewhat depends on the individual. For me, I actually am somewhat of an anomaly in that I passed into the Foreign Service before I actually graduated from undergraduate. And I was in the process while I got my master's degree. Certainly, the master's degree was extremely valuable from the perspective of gaining a different academic perspective, a different way of thinking about foreign affairs, uh, developing the skills of critical thinking and the analytical capabilities that I have put to use in my career. It really depends on the individual. My advice to students really is to be well-rounded and pursue their passions because they're much more likely to be successful, whether it's getting into the State Department or doing something else. Um, it, it's it's pursuing those dreams and really being passionate about what you do. There's a, there's a large number of government agencies that are involved internationally. What was it about the Department of State that specifically uh, appealed to you? Uh, Well, you know, the State Department is the lead foreign affairs agency for making the policy, and that really appeals to me. Uh, We are a consumer of the products that are produced by many other agencies, and certainly many other agencies participate in developing our foreign policy. But the State Department really is the lead on developing our foreign policy, and that's very appealing to me. I think the the idea of being a diplomat is something that's very exciting and interesting to people. But I think the actual day-to-day 
workings of what it's like to be a diplomat is something that we we really don't have a, a really good idea or picture of. Could you explain for us a little bit of, of what a regular day in the life of a diplomat looks like here in the U.S., but on a posting abroad as well? It's interesting. There's this mystique out there about uh, diplomacy that you have to be born into it, that we wear tuxedos and evening gowns and we we get whisked off in a helicopter like James Bond. And that is not, in fact, the reality. Every single day in the Foreign Service as a U.S. diplomat is going to be different. And that is what I love about it. It's incredibly intellectually stimulating. It is so difficult to characterize what a normal day would be because there is no normal. Uh, That being said, there are huge operational aspects to our foreign policy that I think students fail to grasp until they see it uh, for themselves. This is why one of the great ways to learn about diplomacy is to pursue an internship in in diplomacy in the State Department or in any agency which will take you into an embassy overseas because there's so much that's operational. Uh, the report that needs to be written, the the policymaker who is coming to your embassy from Washington who needs to be taken care of and needs to have a schedule and we need to go with that person to write notes about their meetings. It's not just about us, it's about others. So um, I think it's very, very hard to characterize what a normal day is because there is no normal. <laughs> there, there are career paths though. If, if that, Absolutely. Can you maybe explain to us a little bit about what they look like and how they might impact the day-to-day life of a person in a particular track? Sure. One thing to remember about the State Department is that we are a global enterprise. I think we have 276 posts around the world in 191 countries. So we're huge. Think about any global enterprise and the skill sets that you need in that in that organization. I mean, we need IT professionals, nurse practitioners, architects, engineers, economists, financial advisors, the whole range. So um, when thinking about whether or not there's a career opportunity, that's one of the things to really be aware of is that it's very quite broad. Within that context, uh, many people think of, of the Foreign Service and diplomacy in when when they think of that, they're thinking about Foreign Service generalists or Foreign Service officers. Those are the same thing. Within those, we have five different career tracks. I myself am a consular officer, and I love what I do for a living. Consular officers are responsible for providing visa services to foreign nationals who want to come to the United States and also for taking care of U.S. citizens overseas. The second career track, in no particular order of importance, except, of course, consular because it's the best because that's what I do. Now, I'm just kidding. Uh, You need to pick what resonates for you. But the second one would be public diplomacy. Those are the officers who go to a foreign country and tell America's story to the foreign public through press, through speaking engagements, study abroad programs, and the like, cultural programming, for example. Uh, We have management officers who not only make sure that our facilities are functioning and we have all the tools that we need to do our job, they also engage with the foreign governments to help support our diplomatic platform, if you will, the infrastructure aspects of what we do. Uh, And then we have political and economic officers. One works in political, the other works in economics, obviously. And what they do is they go to the foreign country and they evaluate, they'll have private meetings, they assess what's going on in their particular realm. 
and and assess and analyze does it matter to the United States? If so, how? What should our policy be? They will write recommendations for policy uh, and and do a lot of reporting back to Washington so that decision makers know what is going on in those realms. All five of those tracks uh, would be considered traditional diplomats and engage with the foreign country, with the foreign public in a variety of different ways. I would say Consular management tracks are a little bit more operational, whereas policy, uh, political and economic are a little more policy-oriented, but we all do it all, mm-hmm. quite frankly. Is it one of those things where you can go and spend a portion of your career in the consular track and then decide that you're actually more interested in another track or you want a change of scenery and, and switch to another track? Or do you have to make that commitment fairly early? You do have to select which track you're going to pursue before you start our testing process and our application process. That being said, we are generalists and we are expected to have the skill set that crosses boundaries. We also do have opportunities to cross those boundaries in our assignments. Everyone who comes in at the entry level is going to do some consular work at the beginning. And then as we go through our careers, we will typically stay within our track for most of it, but then cross over. For example, I am a consular track officer. I have also done political military affairs work. I have worked in human resources. I did a little bit of political reporting on labor issues. but most of the career has been in the consular realm. There are some ways you can formally change throughout your career, uh, but it's not something that somebody should count on. It's going to vary with our strategic uh, hiring priorities, our strategic workforce needs, and that and that type of thing. Uh, but there are certainly opportunities throughout to do it on an informal basis. Is it is it necessary that someone have multiple languages under their belt before they apply? We do not actually require the uh, ability to speak a foreign language before coming into the State Department. People who have those languages and those capabilities, though, certainly are more interesting and attractive candidates to us. It is helpful, but it's not required. That's one of the great things about the State Department also, in my view, is we will teach you what you need to know to a certain degree. So if we, uh, for whatever reason, have decided to send someone to a country where they don't have that language, we do provide that language training. I came into the State Department speaking Spanish and Portuguese through my education and my study abroad opportunities. And I had an Argentinian boyfriend when I was studying abroad, so my Spanish was really good when I came in. Um, And I did go to Brazil for my first assignment, to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, making use of that Portuguese language. After that, though, some opportunities presented themselves, and I was looking at both an assignment in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and Shenyang, China, both of which would bring with it two years of language training prior to that assignment. And I ultimately ended up selecting Chinese, Mandarin, uh, and going to Shenyang, China. So I studied Mandarin for two years, receiving a full salary from the State Department while I did that. So for that two years, that was your job, was to learn that language? That was my full-time job. Yeah. Moving abroad is um, it's exciting and it's there's a lot of opportunity to meet new people, but there's also some some challenges to relocating to a different country. What what were some of the challenges that you encountered? And then I guess if you could talk to us a little bit about what the lifestyle is like, because it's not like you get to stay in one place for ten years. There's a there's a fair bit of of movement that that comes with it. Sure, there are absolute 
pluses and minuses to moving around all the time. Uh, it's always different, so that's a, definitely a positive. If you're unhappy in one location, you can move on. That's a, probably another benefit, although I've never really had that that uh, experience of being super unhappy in a location. Um, it's not easy. This is not a career for the faint-hearted. We work very, very hard. It is stressful when you move. You're picking up your whole family. We, Our families travel with us. I have raised two and a half kids in the Foreign Service. I say half because that third one is uh, in middle school. And, you know, she's not successfully raised, but I'd say she's well <laughs> on her way. Um, but it is, it is stressful. You have to pack up your whole household and you move. You have to sometimes learn a new language, certainly learn a new culture, because culture is different everywhere you go. I mean, even coming to Texas was a a culture adjustment for me. So that I think has been one of the challenges and one of the exciting things at the same time. The other reality is we are far from home when we're overseas. And there may be a family event that we are unable to attend. Uh, You might not necessarily make all the family weddings. And um, that can be hard sometimes. At the same time, I have friends all over the world. My family has had an opportunity to visit places they might not have visited otherwise. My uh, parents, neither of my parents had a passport until I had already been in the Foreign Service, I think, for more than a decade. And, of course, they got those passports to visit, not to visit me, but to visit the grandkids. Um, so, you know, there, there you adjust to the reality. The other thing is nowadays the Internet provides so many more opportunities to stay connected with your family through FaceTime or Skype or whatever other product that you want to use. I don't want to make a commercial endorsement (laughs) here. Um, uh, But you certainly can communicate with home a lot more easily than you could when I joined the service. How long do you roughly uh, spend in a particular country? The average tends to be two to three years. At the beginning of your career, it'll be a little bit shorter than later on. It varies if you're going to a combat zone or a hardship zone. Uh, But typically, you should be expecting two to three year assignments throughout the duration of your career. Yeah. And I'd be curious to ask too, I'm sure the demand for somewhere like Switzerland or uh, the Maldives are probably pretty high, but there's other parts of the world where that are, are less desirable to go to just because of the situations that exist in those countries. To what extent um, should uh, young foreign service officers expect to be placed in some of those hardship areas that you mentioned? And does that help down the road? Is it something that everybody has to do? So on. When we sign up, we agree that we will be available for worldwide service. And as part of that, we all accept a fair share of the burden of going to hardship locations. And that governs how we get our assignments. We have some say in the assignments. We can compete for them and say what we're interested in. But it's within that context of having to serve in difficult circumstances as well as non-difficult circumstances, if you will. Um, I would also say that it's very typical in someone's career to be able to manage their assignments in a way that coincides with their family and their personal needs. So, for example, some people choose when when their children are quite little to go to some of the hardship places because schooling's not available in those locations, but it doesn't matter when the kids are super little. Um, Whereas it gets a little more complicated as you get older, as the kids get older. 
Um, so we do have some say. And I would also say that for many of us in the service, we enjoy those types of assignments. There's something really gratifying about going somewhere that's tough and being successful there and, and conquering those challenges. The I like to tell people, you know, one man's Paris is another man's Juba, you know, so some people want to go to those really tough places and just prove their mettle. And it depends on where you are in your life as and, well. And I'm sure this is a job that you have to have a sense of duty that, that comes with it because it is a, it's a service. It's a- Absolutely. You know, <clears throat> when if you ask me why I joined, I will honestly tell you because it was because I wanted to see the world. I had a liberal arts degree, and I was from a an area of high unemployment in northeastern Ohio. <clears throat> That's the reality. I was not at that time motivated by that service aspect. But if you ask me today, why am I recruiting and why am I out there trying to find the next generation of diplomats? It's because of that service aspect. In re- On reflection, 29 years of my career, it really, really is a, a the most gratifying element of this career is that we are in public service. And in fact, when you ask diplomats where they've worked, a lot of us will kind of look at you a little puzzled and say, well, I worked at the Western Sizzlin Steakhouse. I was a salad bar attendant. I worked at the library and then I became a diplomat because we talk about our assignments more frequently, we will say, I served in China, I served in, or I served in Bogota, I served in Rio, as opposed to I worked in China, I worked in Rio. We may say that occasionally, but I would wager if you took a survey or you or you were talking to foreign service officers, most of us are going to say yeah. we served because that's what we do. You, you mentioned earlier that in the consular track, you're overseeing the processing and awarding of visas, but you're also dealing with American citizens in foreign countries. Could you maybe walk us through a situation, um, as far as you're able, um, about how that consular role looked when you were perhaps helping Americans abroad? It absolutely, it is. it varies with each individual American, obviously. But <clears throat> for example, I was serving in Taiwan when uh, we had a 7.6 earthquake. This was my first earthquake ever. I'm from Ohio. We have blizzards, snowstorms, tornadoes. We do not have earthquakes. <laughs> I have to say it was pretty terrifying. Nonetheless, uh, at the time, I was the deputy chief of our consular section, and it was a 7.6 earthquake in the middle of Taiwan. We immediately sprang into action to find out more, as much information as we could about where it occurred, what the casualties might have been. Uh, the role that we played was to assist U.S. citizens who may have been affected by this earthquake to link up, make sure they were getting uh, the medical care they needed from the local authorities, making sure that they had financial resources to be able to deal with the aftermath of the quake if their house was destroyed. We don't automatically extend loans, but we help link people up to the resources that are out there. Uh, I was actually in a vehicle from our office that drove into the epicenter of the quake. It was the first vehicle that made it into the epicenter from our office. Um, And we went door to door looking for U.S. citizens because we knew where they lived, looking to find out what the state of their house was. Were they okay? Had they been injured? Could we communicate with their family back in the United States? We are not search and rescue. 
that's a different function. That's not what we mm-hmm. do, but we're there as a backup to really help our citizens in such circumstances. And I have had a number of experiences like that. I worked on an air crash, which had, you know, multiple casualties of U.S. citizens, um, other events of that nature. So that's one of the ways that we assist our citizens. But it could be on an individual basis. Mm -hmm. Somebody is a victim of crime and they've lost their passport, they've lost their money, they can come to the embassy and we will assist them. And sometimes they've committed a crime. Yes, absolutely. Yes. The Constitution does not travel with you. (laughs) And um, people have to respect local law. And that's one of our functions really is to make sure U.S. citizens who are detained abroad are given due process under local law, that their human rights are protected and respected under international law, they have access to an an attorney and so forth. We do not act as their attorneys, Mm. however. That's gotta be very interesting and varied work from the sounds of it. For for someone who's maybe had a listen to this and and thinks this is actually a career that I'd be interested in, what does it look like to actually join the Foreign Service? It is a highly competitive process. It's actually quite rare for someone to come into the Foreign Service immediately after undergraduate. There are some. It is possible, but it's not probable. Uh, The real key is to become as well-rounded as one can. We actually test and assess for what we call 13 dimensions. And you can find those dimensions on our careers website. But... um, It's leadership skills, management skills, all kinds of different dimensions. And so my advice for people interested is to do some research, first of all, um, and become as well-rounded as possible. One of the last things we want are one-dimensional people. And we want people who can work as part of a team with interpersonal skills and who bring a rich variety of experience to the table both because that's an indicator that they'll be successful, but also because it's what this country deserves. It's what the United States deserves in its diplomats, is to have people able to represent the United States and our interests who have a a broad, well-rounded experience and skill set and can bring different perspectives to the table and help us develop a foreign policy that best promotes U.S. interests. Especially in such an unpredictable job. You know, from one day there might be an earthquake like you talked about, or there there might be a variety of things happening in the course of just a few weeks, and one-dimensional folks can't adjust and pivot quite well, as well as people who have those those, uh, bigger bigger toolboxes or larger skill sets. Absolutely. I think the rigor of our application process really speaks to the rigor of the job. In my very first assignment... I was in my mid-20s at this point in my very first assignment in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And the first time I ever served as duty officer, which is really the person who handles and troubleshoots everything after hours when the consulate is closed. The first time I served as duty officer was during Carnival in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. (laughs) And that presented some challenges to me in terms of figuring out how to assist U.S. citizens who were in all levels of difficulty, Uh, some self-imposed, some not (laughs) self-imposed. And um, it's the judgment. That's, that's, we really need people who can exercise the judgment to be able to solve problems. And sometimes 
that requires the maturity that can really only be built through life experience. Absolutely. Yeah. The Foreign Service Officer Test, can you tell us a little bit about that in terms of what it what it is, what it tests? Um, can you take it multiple times? Could you give us sure. an insight into that? We offer the Foreign Service Officer Test, which is step one in a very long process, three times per year. Typically, it is held in June, October, or February, and you can take it once a year. If you take it and don't pass, that's fine. You can take it again the next year. You have to wait a, a, a year to take it again. Uh, we don't hold, there's no black mark against you for taking it and not passing. In fact, most Foreign Service officers, I would say anecdotally, I don't know the, the numbers, but my sense is most Foreign Service officers do take that FSOT more than one time. It is currently in its current form comprised of four components. There is an English writing sample timed 25 minutes. Um, so learn how to write quickly and write well at the same time. Uh, there is an English usage component, a situational judgment, and then a general knowledge component. Um, aside from the writing sample, the rest of it is multiple choice and you take it at a testing center that it, so it's computerized. In the general knowledge section, this is general knowledge of a quite broad type history, civics, economics, current events, uh, a little bit of business, a little bit of psychology. Um, we want, it's all the things that we expect a diplomat to be able to talk about and converse about. In some sense, it sounds like a test that you really can't cram for because the, the, the question base is so broad. Right. It's something, it really is going to be testing your cumulative knowledge. There are some ways to prepare, though. Uh, we have an app. They ha there's an app for that. There's an app for that, yeah. Um, it's called DOS Careers, and it has test questions, sample test questions that you can ask and answer over and over and over again until you know. And hopefully, you don't just memorize them. You go off and you learn something about mm. those things that you don't know. Uh, there is a test online, a sample test, which really is not, it's called a practice test. If you look at the website, really what that is, is a, an assessment of the likelihood of you passing. So you can use that once, I believe it's once every six months, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you can go on and you can take that sample test. We also have a reading list available, which is huge. I don't know. It's probably four or five, maybe longer pages. Wow. Um, lots and lots of, of material out there. Uh, and another great resource is a book called Inside a U.S. Embassy, which can be found at many libraries and probably at commercial sites online. It's available as well. Yeah. What uh, what kind of time frame do you think people need to be looking at? It's, it, you know, with the LSAT, we say to people, you know, three to six months is, is the minimum, but it's more like six than three. Are we looking at a similar time commitment? For longer. Longer? Yeah. yeah. I think really what we're looking at is a minimum of 12 months uh, from the time someone places that first application, depending on what category of job that they're applying for. But for foreign service officer or generalist, it's definitely going to be a minimum of 12 months, probably longer. Mm -hmm. The reality is most people coming into the foreign service have not made it through the process successfully the first time. Hmm. And a, a pretty common pattern that we see are people who try through the process 
a couple of times in their early to mid 20s. If they don't make it, they go off and do other things and then they loop back around to us six or seven years later. That tends to be a fairly common pattern. I'm not saying that it's required. It's just what we're observing in our recent classes. Is there an age limit? 59 and a half for foreign service. Okay. Uh, the exception to that being in the consular fellows program, which was a very unique, small program for certain languages. There's no age limit on that, but it is a limited appointment as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those who are interested in joining the State Department on the civil service side of the house, which is where you work on foreign policy and you support foreign policy, but you do it domestically in the United States and um, you're part of the civil service, there is no age limit for civil service. Okay. For, for students who are approaching the end of their college career and are thinking about foreign service as a career path, what kind of things can they be doing? Should they be looking at uh, you know public policy degrees or international affairs degrees? Should they be going and getting some work experience? And then also, if you could just give us a rundown on some of those scholarship programs that the Department of State has. Uh, the My first bit of advice is, if they're looking to join the Foreign Service and they're thinking about what they should do in the meantime, I would say never ever make a decision about what to do based on a calculation that you think it will get you into the Foreign Service. It may or or it may not. So my advice is do things that are of interest to you. If they bring the ancillary benefit of making you more competitive for state, that's great. But in the meantime, do what is really of interest to you and Mm. make your choices based on that. Um, some of the opportunities that we have through state for advanced degrees and so on, um, we have funding available that can provide, um, a master's degree and then bringing some, bring someone into the foreign service called the Pickering Fellowship and the Wrangle Fellowship. Those are two separate programs. For those who are interested in technology, we also have the Foreign Affairs IT Fellowship, which also will pay for a master's and bring somebody into the State Department. So they get a, a, a graduate degree and a job. And two, two summers paid internships in between. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Great programs. Uh, for the Wrangle and Pickering, those deadlines come up really soon in the academic year. Um, they tend to be in September, and the application period is usually open in the summertime. Fantastic. I Fulbright think... is actually another program yeah. that is not a feeder into the Foreign Service, but certainly is a program available through the State Department. And I want to congratulate Baylor on on uh, its just record number of Fulbright recipients this past year. I think it was seven we talked about earlier today. Um and that's absolutely great. And in fact, one of your Fulbright recipients is also a recipient of one of our other fellowships to come into the Foreign Service. So um, kudos to Baylor for that. <laughs> Sick and bears, right? Yeah. I don't know if you wanted to talk a little bit about um, law and the State Department. I'd love to. So I would say that there are a high number of Foreign Service officers who do have law degrees. There uh-huh. are a high number who have other degrees as well. So it's not necessarily necessary to get a law degree to come into the State Department, but certainly is consistent with the career path of a Foreign Service officer. But there are a number of ways that law comes into play for careers in the State Department. On the one hand, um, in the civil service, 
one can have a law degree and come into the State Department and practice law as a practicing attorney representing uh, the State Department in litigation, in court, and what have you. And that's generally through the Office of the Legal Advisor. And that would be a civil service path. Um, You can also, on the civil service side, exercise a law degree by evaluating our proposed foreign policy and rules and regulations for consistency with U.S. law and providing your legal expertise in that way. And that is how uh, one really would practice law in the State Department, would be through the civil service. So not taking the foreign service test. Right. Yeah. Um, For those who have a law degree who take the foreign service test, their law degree would serve much the same purpose as my master's of Latin American studies degree in the sense that it's the educational foundation on which I am pursuing a career in diplomacy. Hmm. And certainly the knowledge and the skills that are developed through that degree program are relevant, applicable, and incredibly useful in the foreign service, but it's not practicing law in the foreign service. That's a, that's a good point. What, what advice would you have for students who have heard uh, what you've had to say today and have thought, you know, this is something I want to find out some more? What, what should they be reading? What should they be doing in terms of spending their summers somewhere? What advice would you have for them? Again, I would say be as well-rounded as possible. Uh, study abroad opportunities are great. Internship programs are wonderful. There is great value to be had in plain old jobs as well. Don't underestimate that value. If that's what you have to do to pay the bills, do it. I was a salad bar at the Western Sizzlin' Steakhouse when I was growing up, and I learned an incredible amount. So those types of jobs are also very, very valuable. Community service opportunities are also useful, um, not only to the community and because it is service, but also it makes you a a more well-rounded individual. Um, And those community service projects don't have to be exotic. They don't have to be huge time commitments. So if you are able to take a summer and go do a project overseas, that's fantastic. If you're not able to do that, that's fine. Carve out some time, whether it be teaching Sunday school, whether it be uh, working at the food bank or a couple hours a week tutoring a an underprivileged student. Things of that nature are also incredibly valuable. Yeah, you, you don't have to have cured cancer to be a competitive applicant. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. We're not looking for winners of the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> Although if we found one, it'd be great. Yeah, no, it'd certainly help <laughs> yes. them. So if you have a Nobel Peace Prize, right. you know, think about yes, applying. Think about applying. <laughs> <laughs> Julie, thank you so much for your time. Uh, and We know that you've been on campus in the past for our Federal Day event, which is in the spring. Um, so do keep an eye out for um, promotions and information about that this coming spring. Uh, but thank you so much for being a guest and we appreciate your time and insight. It's my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thanks.